we're going to start posting each podcast episode that you see on YouTube a week earlier on Patreon. So feel free to join for early access to all episodes. Plus, we're going to start doing bonus podcast episodes every week at patreon.com slash concrete videos. Feel free to go check it out or just get it a week late here on YouTube. Talk to you later. Hello, world. Bob Riola and Mike Betts are former Florida DOT divers who were in charge of inspecting thousands of Florida bridges over the span of their careers. Their job was to dive under every bridge and thoroughly inspect each piling for structural integrity below the waterline. On May 9th of 1980, at 7.38 in the morning, a freighter hit the Sunshine Skyway Bridge over Tampa Bay. A 1,400-foot section of the bridge collapsed into the bay, killing 35 people. And my two guests today, Bob and Mike, were the first divers in the water that day to attempt to rescue and retrieve any victims of what is now known as one of the worst disasters in Florida's history. I must warn you, this conversation gets graphic and extremely tense at times. Without further ado, please welcome Bob Riola and Mike Betts. All right, we're live. Thanks for coming on, guys. Oh, thanks for having us. Uh, you know, it's been a while coming, and uh, we certainly appreciate the opportunity to tell our side of the story. Yeah, your guys' story is super fascinating. Um, for the people out there that don't know, could you please just give me like a brief background, each of you, on to, as to like where you came from and what your background is? Yeah, Mike. Well, I uh, joined the Florida Department of Transportation in May of 1980, having just served about five years in the Navy. I was an underwater photographer, diver in the Navy, and when I got out, the um, Florida... Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. State Employment Service pointed me to a job in Tampa with bridge inspection, and uh, I went over and interviewed, and Bob hired me, and we went from there. And yourself, Bob? Uh, unfortunately, I didn't have any choice in where I was born, but I was born up north in Connecticut, in a small town called Clinton, where I taught myself to dive when about 16. I joined the Marine Corps, did my time in Vietnam, got some military training in diving, Ended up working for the uh, Department of Transportation, was hired in January 1974 after uh, mm. several years as a commercial diver after I left the Marine Corps. Uh, back then, we were statewide. There was only f- eight divers in 1974 that covered the entire state. So uh, we basically divided up into four different sections, and we traveled all around statewide and did every bridge 
that was longer than 20 feet and deeper than two foot of water uh, for the about six or seven years. And then uh, we were assigned to uh, District 1, which is on west central coast of Florida, covered about 14 counties, fresh and salt water, same routine, provided inspections to ensure the safety of the traveling public for the Department of Transportation, strictly underwater. That's what we were. We were professional commercial divers. So uh, that, that was uh, the beginning of that. And I got my uh, uh, tutorship under uh, a fellow named Vic Griswold, who was the second DOT diver hired in the state in 1969. The first diver hired was a fellow named Dick Barthel. The bridge inspection program didn't begin until 1969, so I got in kind of in the basement, and uh, Mike did as well. Uh, it was uh, pretty interesting back then, so it was uh, a lot of one-on-one training and uh, a lot of uh, water time, a lot so of water time. Is it right when you started that there was two divers in the entire state of Florida that whose whose job was specifically to inspect these bridges all around Florida? And there was there's hundreds of bridges in Florida, right? Absolutely, there are thousands. There's of about twelve. There's currently ballpark about twelve thousand bridges in the state of Florida. Not all are water bridges, but twelve thousand bridges, give or take. Probably about uh, three or four thousand water bridges. December seventeenth, nineteen sixty-eight. Northbound, across the Anclote River, the bridge collapsed. U.S. 19. U.S. 19. That's right up there in Tarpon Springs in Pinellas County. One person lost their life. Immediately, uh, the media suspected uh, sinkholes because we did have sinkhole problems back in Florida back then. There was no DOT bridge inspection program, period, in the state of Florida, above water or underwater. There were very few in 1969. That tragedy brought forward legislation that was passed in 1969 that mandated that all of the bridges in Florida be inspected once every two years according to National Bridge Inspection Standards out of Washington. A young fella named Ed Burkett, who is still pretty active at work at Mm -hmm. Campo Kissinger over in Tampa, was assigned that responsibility of creating and developing and putting together a bridge inspection. The first two divers hired were hired in 1969, Hmm. and there were only two divers, two divers that covered the entire state. Wow. When that bridge collapsed, it was later determined that it collapsed based on the fact that the piling were constructed out of steel. They corroded to a point that led to failure, they then understood through that, that legis- through that legislation that it needed to be corrected to ensure the safety of the traveling public and to let them know that, that bridges were being maintained and taken care of. When they were hired, the immediate task was to inspect all steel bridges in the entire state, just the two of them. They did it for about four years, and they hired two other divers named Pete Gaddy, Jack D. Now there were four divers. They split the state basically up into four sections, north, south, east, and west. Okay. And as a team, they all swept around and did as many bridges as they could, starting with the steel, inventorying, inspecting. 
from scratch. There was nothing. There was nobody even had an idea how many steel bridges there were. From there, they eventually uh, completed that tack, and then they went around and did all the timber bridges because there were a lot of old bridges that were created back in the day out of creosote timber piling, especially down south. Still it was are. Quick, really? No, oh, yeah. Quick Still. and fast. With concrete roads on top of them? They overdecked them eventually. Back in the 30s and 40s, when they started building bridges out of timber, they just had planks. Oh, okay. They eventually overtopped them with concrete. And, and asphalt, you know, as the applications came along. There's some fantastic pictures uh, of the old Alligator Alley and being created in the, uh, the 30s and, and whatnot that uh, show that very, very well. The, they uh, found, obviously, that the, the majority of the problems were going to go ahead and be for some of the older bridges. Many of them have never been inspected. Mm. So those, those divers ended up hiring four more divers, which created eight. That's when I came aboard in 1974. So eight divers. Eight divers in 1974. That's correct. And there was only two-man teams. That's the way it was set up. Everybody understood and understands now, of course, that the best way and the safest way would be three-man teams. Sometimes if you're out on the water, the two-man team, having one guy in the water is not always good. Having two guys in the water is not always good. Best would have been three. However, in 1969... The, wait, wait, did you just say the best is to have three divers in the water at once? No, no, would be, to, I, I, I misspoke, it would be to have a three-man dive crew so that Got you it. could have one diver in the water or two divers in the water and somebody qualified to watch them okay. in the water rather than just have two divers and have them both in the water with nobody in with the boat nobody on or top. have one guy in the boat watching the other guy's mm. bubbles. Mm. You know, it doesn't work that way. The best way would have been, however, in 1969... That's just the way it was. Uh, 1969, nobody had any idea that the waters that they were getting into, uh, as you can imagine, they were full of alligators. They were full of unknown hazards like pollution and contamination. Some of the waters back in the 60s and 70s were considered industrial uh, canals and stuff. Uh, the Fen Holloway and some of the bridges up in the panhandle with the paper products. Mm -hmm. Jacksonville, some of the Fertilizers and pesticides and shit. But the chemical, uh, I don't want to get anybody upset, but it sounded like the chemicals that they used to uh, create paper products, yeah. they had a lot of problems with uh, the, the, well, I know the now discharge. Well, so it had to have been worse back then. Yeah, I with imagine. the discharge. Yeah, yeah, the water quality back in the 60s and 70s, uh, it was a kind of atrocious. Yeah. Uh, I can remember diving in the sky the first couple of times. And it was miserable. And then back in the 90s, you know, when I left, it was significantly better. And we began to see a significant change. But back in the day when we were doing the inspections, the eight-man team, we were based out of Orlando, uh, Oviedo, technically, and we traveled all around the state and did our inspections. We eventually were absorbed by the districts, but then again, we were still in west-central Florida, so we had that responsibility in the Skyway. So I had, uh, by the time the uh, Skyway accident had uh, occurred, I had a good f four or five years of firsthand knowledge and experience diving on that structure. Before How did you guys meet? He came for a job interview. Mm -hmm. as, uh, he advertised. He didn't tell him you worked in the paper for a little bit. You worked in the paper? Oh, I used to uh, be a stringer for the old Clearwater newspaper. What's Shoot, a stringer? Shooting, uh, freelance shooting pictures. Oh, okay. You know, just picking up weekend assignments, things like that. That's awesome. Mm, yeah, it was fun. The application... Uh, Back when we had dark rooms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ancient technology. Yeah. Mike, uh, Mike applied for the uh, job as a diver 
back in 1974, the minimum qualifications for a DOT diver, dive inspector, were five years full-time commercial diving with military training or military diving experience, mm. a minimum of five years. It was not a recreational activity. It was not a sport activity. It was not a fun. It was commercial. It was work. So in other words, we didn't get to choose which waters we went into, whether it was cold, whether it was warm, whether it was clear, whether it was dirty, whether it was full of critters or not full of critters. Critters. Define critters is a widely defined term, I feel like. <laughs> you live in Florida. However, I can honestly say, and I think Mike can too, I'm Eight-foot so critters with big teeth. So happy that we no longer have to dive out there. You got Now you've got lionfish. Oh, yeah, yeah. you got the crocodile population has exploded. The alligators are off the endangered species list. We should have been on the, the UOT divers should have been on the endangered species <laughs> list back in the day instead of the alligators. However, that's just the way it worked out. So you said you needed military diving experience. Did you, what did you do? Did you actually dive in the military? Yes. What did you do in the, what did you do? Secret. Secret. Can you just give me like. My like military specialty was. A you were in Vietnam, right? Yes, I was in Vietnam in 1967 Obviously, I don't know much about that, but did you do a lot of underwater stuff? With my diving experience, I had the ability to uh, blow up anything that they wanted blown up, whether it was above water or underwater. My military specialty was a 1372, which is a nuclear weapons technician. So I was a 19-year-old Marine with a key to the nuclear weapons locker. Holy shit, that's pretty crazy. But it's secret. We can't tell anybody that. <laughs> yeah, no, I was That's intense. 1372. That's intense. So you were more than qualified to be uh, a DOT diver inspecting um, these bridges. I, I met the qualifications, yeah. and like I said, we had one-on-one for five years. That was a minimum before you got your certification. Mm-hmm. It was five years on-the-job training, one-on-one. That's so, yes. incredible. Yeah, we did. So... How many bridges would you say you dove and inspected over your career? Oh, my goodness. Go ahead, Mike. <laughs> I can tell you that... Um, this thing a little bit closer to you when you're talking. I can tell you that a, a typical bridge inspection crew, and I'm talking about a, a topside crew, would get a, approximately, depending on the size of the structures, um, you know, discounting the large Howard Franklin, Courtney Campbell types, but normal 3, 5, 10, 15, 20-span bridges... A crew of two people might get 30 of those a month to inspect. Um, Of those, perhaps uh, 20% maybe would be uh, bridges over water and would require a dive team to to come in and do their part of the inspection. And then the topside crew takes the dive report, combines it with their inspection findings, and Mm. produces a standalone document that uh, reflects the underwater and the topside. So, 30 a month times 12 months times 30 years. I don't have a calculator, but it's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. 
And I think probably because I was strictly diving, and we covered actually two districts by the time I left, uh, thousands, thousands. And some of the longer ones, like the Skyway, uh, when, when you talk about doing the Skyway, the Skyway is like the scariest bridge I could think of. Um, good, good. That's what Steve Irwin said too. Steve Irwin came out here and dove on that one time and Did said he really? that was the scariest one. Yeah. Um, I don't nah. understand why. Why is that scary? I don't, not so much. I mean, there's scarier bridges, scarier bridges that we have even in Pinellas County. Probably one of the scariest ones for me would be Johns Pass because it's right there. Mm-hmm. Right on I, I feel like it's scarier because there's so much water. Like there's so uh, such a big distance between mm-hmm. the, each piece of land. Johns Pass, I could, I could hit a golf ball over Johns Absolutely, Pass. which concentrates all the bad things in one spot, doesn't it? Ooh, interesting. So what's so scary about is John's Pass? Would you say that's the scariest channel you've dove? Well, number one, it's right on the water, like Sebastian and some of the other ones. Mm-hmm. A lot of oh, Sebastian it's, al- it's almost impossible to dive uh, whenever you want. You, you have to pick your time cautiously and carefully because of the currents, because of the velocity four, four, five, six feet a second. That's pretty fast. Back in the seventies and eighties, there was a lot of. Uh, uh, commercial fishing going on and a lot of the commercial boats came into john's pass that's the grouper capital of the world on the west coast of florida and they would uh, fillet their fish and uh, discard the carcasses mm-hmm. near the pass because that's where most of the commercial fish houses were that's a lot of sharks so there was a lot of traffic in and out mm. uh, for following the boats uh, people fishing swimmers it was also 50 feet deep people don't realize that it was 50 feet deep uh, they recently replaced it due in large fact that many of the piling had completely washed out and become unsupported and were dangling in the air or dangling in the water. So it was, uh, you know, replaced and they put a fantastic new structure up there. Velocity, fish, animals, uh, they've had several drownings there, uh, people getting sucked off the, into the uh, pass and the current and stuff. It's, it's pretty dangerous. Boat traffic, pretty narrow also. Uh, we didn't, you know, necessarily uh back then have three people in the boat like i said a lot of times we would tire a boat up and just both of us go in to make sure we were okay in the water so there was a lot of stuff that made different bridges hairy there were some bridges down in alligator alley uh that you, you know you really had to think twice and look twice before you went in when they opened that up those alligators had never seen divers before <laughs> i can guarantee Did you, you run into alligators when you were diving those bridges frequently really well that's how do you get how do you uh what do you do when you're underwater like well i tried to call manny but i couldn't get manny to come out (laughs) (laughs) you needed one of those tridents over there he's gonna go ahead and go out there and lift them up and and play with him and stuff but uh manny i how you doing (laughs) Uh, you know i just i'm not manny um unfortunately we've had we've had a couple of brush-ups with with some alligators and stuff that didn't end up very well for the alligator because we're both still here, but, uh, you know, we don't look for it. It's just one of those things. If you're in Florida, you can almost always count on bumping into an alligator in the water, and especially now uh, with the and population. I would say generally they're, they're not territorial or aggressive. They, they're more likely to retreat than attack, is mm. my experience. Mm. In my experience, because I dove with the DOT a little bit longer than Mike was, if you get a construction crew that's out there feeding them for three yeah, months, right. they're left over lunch. Yeah. then they usually are pretty interested in seeing what you're going to bring in. 
for lunch when you get in the water. So it made it kind of interesting. We had a hard time a lot of time. We would stop down in the Everglades at places where the people would stop in the bus and actually feed them, even though they weren't supposed to back then. Like I say, it made it more difficult to do our job. It was just part of that thing that you signed up for. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense how now that I think about it that there is so like such a narrow channel in John's Pass. It makes sense that there's so much more sea life coming, and plus with the fishermen and everything. And, and, and people and boats. How, how deep is, can you explain what it's like on a typical dive? How many times did you dive the Skyway Bridge? Oh, my goodness. Uh, oh, gosh. I, I had, I'm going to say 22 years of diving out of the Skyway Bridge, so I, I, that, that's kind of yeah, tough. The Skyway, like every other regular like, bridge in, in Florida gets inspected every two years every two years mm-hmm. okay. um, some structures that are weight restricted for whatever reason or have structural deficiencies that the inspectors want to monitor more closely than two-year cycle can be as frequently as 12 six even th- even three even one month they could go look at a, a structure every month to mm. make sure that it doesn't need to be closed so when you talk about how many times did you dive the skyway um, a typical inspection of the Skyway for a dive crew would probably take two months. Really? Absolutely. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, and that's with, like I say, you don't get to pick your weather or pick your visibility. Sometimes you, you go down and it may only be two or three feet. And a lot of it's tactile. Yeah. It's not swimming across and just looking at stuff. It's swimming across, finding the concrete piling, really almost shimmy up and down. Each side and each face, it's right in your face. It's more like a telephone lineman when you're climbing up and down the piling. And not only that, but you have to remove all the uh, barnacle growth to see what's underneath. Mm-hmm. So that that in itself is a, a difficult task. Or enough so that you can see what you're inspecting and stuff. And then if you find more, you can go ahead and bring in heavier equipment. There were times out in the uh, early 70s when we first saw the cracking on the main piers on the north side. We spent hundreds of hours out there with pneumatic and with hydraulic equipment cleaning the large piers as big as this room uh, to, to find cracks as small as eighth of an inch, a quarter of an inch, and then documenting them Jeez. so that we could bring it back to the engineers so that they could p- take a peek at it. Once they saw that we had some large cracks, large up to a half an inch, they would send us back out on those cracks with a, a homemade jig with a hydraulic drill, two-inch core, and we would set it up on that concrete structure and take core samples at that crack location to see how far in, if we could, Mm. that crack went and see what kind of material it was. There was about, I'm guessing now, about 12 or 14 piers on the north side and the south side of both old skyways. And I think we only found cracking on the north side of the newer of the two bridges in 76 so a, a few of them are broken, uh, are cracked. But we do, you know, you could spend a hundred hours just on one pier taking samples. We put pieces of glass on either side of the crack and epoxied up there. And that way, if the pier did shift or move, that gr- glass would more than likely fracture or crack if it got that bad. That was our early strain gauges. They hired consultant companies to actually put strain gauges on the opposite sides of the crack to see if there was any movement and stuff. There was a lot of testing going on before the bridge was struck to see if they were going to make significant 
uh, repairs to those piers and other parts of the bridge as well. Wow. So you could spend hundreds of hours just on yeah. an assigned task out at the Skyway. By the time that bridge was struck on May 9th, I figure I had at least a documented 200 miles of underwater bridge inspection. Because back then, there were we traveled the entire state. The seven-mile bridge is not a seven-mile inspection. Talking about the bridge in the Keys, In right? the Keys. Yeah. It's nine miles because it's not just swimming across and looking at everything. It's swim to that pier, swim around it if you can, go to the next pier, swim around it if you can, and keep going. So that ends up to be about nine miles. Good the Skyway Lord. was about four, four and a half miles. By the time you got done with that, it was five, almost six miles because you didn't just swim from pier to pier. You swam up and down. You swam the bents and stuff. So... I know Mike, when he first started, uh, I I think it was a new experience for him. But for me, I had been out there. So I based my comments on five years of, you know, full-time diving out there and stuff. So, you know, that was uh, that was quite an experience back in the earlier days. So the Skyway wasn't scary for you to dive? Uh, I, I think I was more comfortable. I just as comfortable at the Skyway. You had to be so comfortable diving yeah, that you didn't think you. about it. Diving was simply a mode of transportation to mm. get back and forth to our job. Yeah, you had to put everything else out so that you could concentrate on your inspections. Yeah, and typically we had pretty good visibil- visibility out there. We were we were very fortunate. Uh, west coast of Florida, other than the Keys, it, you know, has some excellent visibility on and off. Mm. Jacksonville, not so much. Is, not so much. <laughs> not so much. I mean, you know, we, we've got had good water. There were times out there when it was a lot of feel and stuff, but on the day that the Skyway went down, based on my time out there, like see, we, we had a good 30 foot of visibility because mm-hmm. Mike was taking pictures of the entire roadway down there with his camera. What's the deepest it gets under the Skyway, under the, like the main channel? The, the main channel is probably 50 to 53 feet, maybe 60. That's, okay. It, it varies. Egmont Key is a little bit deeper. There's a hole out there, of course. Okay, so walk me through the day that the bridge was struck by the ship what were you guys doing like that morning <laughs> how long have you had you guys been working together at that point can that can you walk me through that day sure i'll i'll start go ahead bob if i can fill in <laughs> mike was interviewed and hired on may 2nd which was a friday i uh, called him up friday afternoon and I uh, told him to report to work on Monday. So technically, he was hired on the 2nd. Came into work Monday, got his equipment and his gear, dive shop, showed him around the office, told him what our responsibilities were, got them all geared up, went to the tackle shack in uh, Pinellas Park and got us some equipment and stuff. Uh, explained to him what our responsibilities were. Uh, spent some time diving at the Skyway with Mike. Prior to May 9th, we did a couple of dives at within a within 200 yards of that location where the bus fell on the water. We were inspecting the fender system. What was what was left of the fender system? The fender system was a big issue. It wasn't protected as it should have been. Not my wheelhouse. Way before my time. What What do you mean when you say fender system? Uh, it. By the time I started in 1974, the timber fender system that was built on that structure to protect both of them had been demolished by ship traffic. There was very little protection. Absolutely. There was no no protection. 
uh, to speak of for any large vessels, mm-hmm. as obvious as was obvious. Uh, so we spent a couple of days diving out at that location and a couple of days before that. So actually, by May 9th, he had only been with me two or three dives and actually five working days. And, and Mike put it very, very well when we were being interviewed uh, by the Times. That's like somebody now joining the New York Fire Department on September 6th and then walking up the stairs on September 11th. Mike had no idea, neither did I, that morning on Friday, May 9th, when we got to the yard. When we got to Pinellas Maintenance Yard, DOT yard at the intersection almost of 49th and Ulmerton, uh, it was pretty miserable out. Uh, it was rainy. That was what the forecast was. I had a mm, portable radio on my hip, called the office, told them we were going to step out. We hopped in the car at about 7 o'clock in the morning after we met, and we uh, knew we were going to have a long day because we were headed out to the Skyway after the weather cleared. We stopped down at a restaurant, local restaurant, called the Bunny Hut. Uh, we were going to get some coffee and some some breakfast and stuff. And at uh, 7.34, give or take, uh, the girls came out from the back and uh, started talking about the Skyway got knocked down. And they were pretty excited. It sounded pretty real. Uh, that was It was kind of a bad joke and, and not a unusual one for the guys you know to always give us the business or me the business about you know this bridge got hit and this one went down and you got to do this and you got to do that and stuff so it was kind of like teasing me so when they came out i you know my first thing was eh, okay they brought the radio out and uh i heard i think it was al ford the sky in the, 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 the sky. guy in the sky and he was on the radio and he was talking about it. he said the skyway had been hit and it's down and they were uh Serious. I remember they had TVs going too. She we may we, we could TV see they we could see some live footage from from the restaurant of the of the accident. Yeah. So we hopped in the car, went back to the yard. The, the boss on there, Ron Hazley, if he was already on the radio, we knew we were headed out there. It was our duty, our responsibility, to investigate any waterborne accidents. That was our uh, position description. That's what we did. When we realized it was for real, uh, nobody needed to tell us to get out there. We knew we had to get out there. So we scooted back to the yard. It took us less than five minutes. We were out of there before 8 o'clock with our gear because we were headed down that way anyways. And the boat. We hopped on Overton, and at that time they were just on and off completing the bypass 275 from up around Olberton and on down south to the Skyway. There were portions of it were asphalt and portions of it were still dirt. Mm. We had a 16-foot Boston whaler with a tank rack, six tanks, and threw all our gear in there and hooked it up to the back of the station wagon and zipped as fast as we could down the partially built interstate, zipping on and off when we couldn't go around any further due to the construction. I think we got off someplace around Fifth Avenue North or something. I think that's right. I remember the high school. I, I'm pretty sure we 
probably ran the curb a couple of times and maybe even jumped the curb a couple of times. Maybe even cut some corners a couple of times. We got down there as fast as we could. We got down to 54th Avenue South, and the uh, police barricade was up. We identified ourselves, and they waved us through. We ran down to our normal launch location, which was Skyway Jacks. Yeah, O'Neill's. Uh, the marina, O'Neill's. Uh, we got dressed. We launched our boat. There wasn't much traffic there at that time. Mm-hmm. It was just us. We were still kind of early. And uh, started to head out from Skyway Jacks to the bridge. At our location, once we got out of the mouth of the uh, 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 the small... Philippi Creek. The small marina. Once we got out of the small marina and got out there, it was completely fogged up. Uh, it was very, very foggy. Mm-hmm. I had been out there numerous times, numerous times, and it had a difficult time navigating out. Very thick fog. Yeah, couldn't see the channel markers. I mean, from the reports, like watching the documentary, they're talking about how it was like hurricane force winds and just downpouring rain as well. That was, that was obviously way earlier. Yes, that's absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. Yep, it was dead still when we got out there because the fog was okay. thick. It was a fog bank, almost solid. It's a coincidence because it broke so that we could actually, first time we saw the bridge was where the current Skyway Memorial is. Okay. Where the very first time is where that memorial is today. It was where we started to see that. Yeah, right also there. where the Blackthorn mm-hmm. Memorial is. You know, it's almost like fate or something that that was there. From that location, we could see the bridge. I could see that the bridge was down. I could see that the boat was still stuffed up underneath there. Uh, we uh, headed out there. And the obvious location to start, as far as I was concerned, was at the end of the bridge because that's more than likely where we would start an inspection would be to go ahead and start measurements and stuff like that rather than just drive around and look for yeah. something to do. So we, what, we, we had a definite, we had a, a, a plan start at that location and start documenting what we had. We were on an accident investigation. So that's what we were doing. But when you guys first got in the boat and put it in the water, had you guys communicated with anybody about what your mission was or what your objectives were? No, other than it's an accident investigation. Get out there as fast as you can. On the way down, listening to the AM radio, we overheard that there was a bus that did go off and potentially 30, 40, 50 people were in the bus. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we did hear that. We did hear that there was traffic that had driven off the bridge. So we knew that there were victims. Uh, we knew that there were cars and vehicles and trucks and people in the water yes so what were you guys like talking to each other about like what were you like what were what were you guys going to do once you got there i don't think we were doing much talking i think it was more just trying to get down there and and you know it's really hard to grasp the whole enormity of the situation until we actually got there and could see what was happening i I think the when we saw these uh, students from eckerd college in the water and their boats out there of course we we were already familiar with who they were and and Mm -hmm. what they would normally be doing but when we could tell that that they were over the site of the accident, probably over the site of that bus, and that they had divers in the water at the same time working above the dangling steel stupor structure that was still in place above them that could potentially start dropping at any second and crash right down on, on top of them. 
I think we felt it was our duty to relieve them, to move them away from danger and assume that responsibility ourselves. We're the state inspectors. These, these kids had no business, I don't think, being out there doing what they were doing, although they were well-meaning, good intentions, but taking an unnecessary risk for, uh, for nothing, I thought. I, I, would, I agree in large part with Mike. I don't think the kids had any say in where they anchored up. I'm pretty sure it was the person who was responsible for, you know, for the rescue operation. Let me, let me say this before I go any further. Mike and I completely understand that if it wasn't for those kids and that equipment being there, that we would have never been able to accomplish what little we could under those circumstances. It would have been very nice to have a little more cooperation from the man in charge, but the kids were fantastic, all of them. There was only one person that was being a ding-dong, and he was quickly ignored. We never asked them to leave that location. We simply asked them to back off a little bit so that we could take that responsibility. Like Mike said, my opinion was they were directly in the flight path of anything coming off of that bridge anything we only went under there after i picked up my radio and asked my supervisor who was up there ron mm-hmm. who is a bridge inspector if it was safe and if it was okay for us to go under there so we had communications with topside people when we were out there and he did say yeah bob you got it he later climbed down the ladder and entered our boat. But like Mike said, I, I, I'm, not, I'm so happy that the kids were out there because Mike and I had a 16-foot open whaler. We had no place to put any victims. We were a two-man team. We simply asked them to back off. There was some unnecessary conversation that happened. Uh, Mike eventually asked if we could tie off to the back of their boat. Mm-hmm. Uh, they let us. They said, what did the young fellow say? Go ahead, or thanks. Yeah, have at it. Have at it. And I'm pretty sure that that young fellow, his name is uh, Mike Rosselet, I think. And I think he also was mentioned in a book not too long ago. Uh, and so that's uh, kind of like where I got his name and stuff. But they were, the kids were fantastic. Kids so what fantastic. specifically were the kids doing? The, the kids, when we first got there, they were kind of scattered at the surface. Were they in the water? Yeah, they had no, uh, you know, the Skyway isn't a, a place to go to learn how to dive or to be <laughs> right. for your first couple of dives. I don't think they were prepared for the current and the velocity, let alone the commotion in the water and the stuff going on, the other activities, the boats and the people buzzing around. Uh, m- several of them were bobbing at the surface, drifting away from the boat. I could tell that they were not going to be or be around. Apparently, a couple of the kids did enter the water and 
uh, go around the boat, uh, the bus, I'm sorry. And I was kind of disturbed. I believe I read in the Times or the Evening Independent that uh, one of the divers uh, indicated that he went around to the back of the bus. Now, remember, as far as I'm concerned, when we first got there, this is an accident investigation scene. Okay. State representatives, we identified ourselves. They knew who we were. That's what we were doing, investigating an accident. Mm-hmm. I had read in the paper that one of those divers from the Eckerd rescue team went to the back of that bus and opened up the door and saw massive bodies and left them there or couldn't get them out. That's okay. You know, that's tough. But didn't make an attempt to close the door. So that kind of like bothered me a little bit. I mean, I, I, we appreciate the help and stuff, but they actually were disturbing the scene. I didn't think that that needed to be done, and I, and I wish that somebody would have told us back then that that, was, that that had occurred. I'd have gone back down and closed that door. <laughs> Do you think maybe they originally thought maybe they just had good intentions, like you said? Absolutely, I'm sure. They thought there could have been some potential survivors. Absolutely. I'm sure they did, and, and that's why I say I'm, I'm not mad at the kids. I just wish if we could have communicated and somebody would have said, I left the door open, maybe, that you know, I'd have jumped back in and closed it. Was there any possibility of any survivors when you got there? Did you, when you guys got there, what was the feeling? Did you think there could be some survivors, or do you think that it was just? It, it, it was that was a tough call. Uh, at that specific time, we we really didn't know. What we did notice was that the back of the bus was still relatively afloat. It was held up mostly by the dual wheels in the back. Mm. Early pictures of that will show that the bus was at a severe, uh, at a pretty good angle with the back wheels up. So there must have been some air in there. To the best of my knowledge, and I haven't found anybody tell me anything different, I was the first and the only person to go in that bus. I had hoped, beyond all hope, that I would. Unfortunately, I was not able to find anybody that was alive or even looked like they had been. I believe the coroner's report on the 35 victims were... 28 individuals perished from severe trauma impact. Mm -hmm. And that seven people had drowned, which would have meant that they survived the crash, but but drowned. That was the Hillsborough County uh, coroner's report, I believe. That was the final count. So it was possible. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately for us, it didn't work out that way. Mm. So the bus was, the back of the bus was kind of, near the surface, and then when you guys got there, you decided that you needed to get in the water and get inside the bus and try to, what was your plan? After we tied off, after we asked them, we asked them to please just get back in the boat and help us recover the victims, receive the victims and take care of them. Because like I say, we had 16-foot Boston Whaler. There was no way we could do that. We, We suited up. We rolled over. We were in the water for less than 10, 15 minutes. When we came up to the bus, it was upside down. It was facing south. Uh, I observed the bus driver, uh, Mike, Curt- Mike Curtis. Uh, he was still behind the wheel. He was inverted. I uh, had Mike by my side. He was with me. Flipper stroke for flipper stroke you guys were the whole right time side by side visibility was very good about 30 feet 
Wow. The front of the bus was anywhere between 10 and 15 feet below the surface of the water. After the bubbles cleared and we rolled in, we could see the bus inverted. I could see Mr. Curtin upside down. I headed to the front of the bus. I positioned Mike. I asked Mike to stay outside. Didn't think there would be any need for two of us. Plus, I obviously felt that was my responsibility as a senior man to take that responsibility, which I did. I positioned Mike outside the, the window near what would have been the entrance the door. Uh, door. Mm-hmm. Uh, handed Mr. Curtis to, to Mike, uh, went in a little bit further and recovered a, uh, another victim and passed him out um, for Mike. So Mike was outside with two victims. I, I went back in a little bit further. I, I didn't realize how far uh, I was going in the bus because I wasn't concentrating on that. I didn't realize until recently, you know, Mike and I really haven't talked about that until recently, when Mike told me that a couple of times that when I went in the bus that he couldn't see me, which to me meant that I went in a little bit further I, than I thought. In the documentary, they mentioned that the roof had been like sheared off. Yes, it had. Yes, it has. The pictures are available on plenty of places that had been. Just about where the seats were, where the mm-hmm. hard portion ends and the windows are, was completely sheared. There's nothing was, there. If it was upside down, it would probably be less than less than four feet of crawl space. Yeah, it was a mangled mess. Is, is what I crawled into. So were you actually... In the it, aisle. You were in, in the aisle, but were you surrounded by bus structure, or was there, like, nothing below well, you? you had... We had the floor. The chassis was overhead. Yeah, the chassis and the walls and the seats going down. Okay. And then below you was what? The steel structure of the bridge. It landed on top of the bridge. God. The truss. Yeah. It, it tumbled on top of the bridge. I went in and grabbed two more victims, uh, disconnected them from the seat. Uh, seat belts? You under the seat belts? No, they didn't have any seat belts. Um, oh, okay. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Greyhound. Uh, I, 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 I want to I say this to all of the... Uh, family members and stuff is that it was very difficult to extract many of those people however I did the best I could and treated them with as much respect as I could at the time I said a soft prayer for each one that I recovered and apologized for the treatment that I was giving them at the time. But I did feel it was necessary to get them out of there as fast as we can because I understood that everybody needed closure, and so did we. We did everything we could to be as respectful as we could. When I came out with the second set of victims, Mike and I headed up to the surface and handed them to the kids that were waiting on the back of the swim platforms of the boat. First victim was uh, Mike Curtin, and uh, he was a good-sized man. He was over six foot tall. I remember his engineer boots and his white shirt. He was resting on the back of the swim platform. Got a picture of him here. Yeah, can you hold it up? Picture a little bit, a little like the same height as your head, right there. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, my curtain right here. 
This is this is Mike. This is me. And these are some of the victims that we brought up. Kids from Eckerd College. It's about eight or nine kids. From Where was college. that photo taken from? I'm not real sure because I was busy at the time, but I'm pretty mm. sure it was taken from up top. Yeah, on the second the bridge, bridge. Deck, whatever was left of the bridge. Right. That picture was a portion of a, uh, I guess, a film because it was featured in the documentary. Okay. Uh, so it's there. Uh, and this second documentary was colorized, and I had never seen that before. And I tell you, when I saw it recently, it struck home. It was yeah. pretty, pretty hard. So we, we had arrived at the surface. We trans we, we passed the bodies off, the, the victims off. They seemed to struggle a little bit, but I think it was because they, they they were overwhelmed. I don't think they had any idea when they got up and were rustled up there in the morning that they were prepared for that. I don't think they had ever no. seen anything. No, very few of us were. I, I had me either. <laughs> Mikey, I had combat experience, so I had dealt with that. I had yeah been through some of that stuff but even even then at that time and it was only going to get worse i later realized you know that that we were just trying to to get everybody out and 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 organize and get them out of there as fast as i can they they seemed to have a difficult time so we had an opportunity to get back into our boat as they were putting people in into the recovery boats uh got a call from our supervisor who wanted to come down so he climbed down on the access ladder from 150 feet by himself and came to uh, the northbound main span and uh, dropped the last two, three feet, mm-hmm. two or three feet into the boat, into the 16-foot open whaler. And uh, he drove our boat back out to that location. We re-anchored off the back of the Eckerd College boat. So now we had three people in the boat, mm. including our supervisor. <clears throat> They looked like they were getting a, a handle on the, the victims, and, and there was more room in the back. A uh, couple of divers had popped up. I think these were, that might have been a, one of the volunteers, and then I think there's a St. Pete Fire Department volunteer diver who came by, and I think he helped also. They uh, had done some diving down at the, at the bottom of the bay. Right. We... Uh, but after the supervisor got in there, we tied back off, and uh, we rolled back in for a second trip into the bus. I stationed Mike out up front again, and uh, because I had removed some of the people from near the front of the bus, I, mm-hmm. obviously I had to go in a little bit further the second time. It was basically the same procedure. Uh, I, I was able to only extricate three people at, at this time mm. with what I had. Uh, I brought two of them out and gave them to Mike. That's when, for me, uh, things got uh, uh, a little more intense. Mm-hmm. On the way out, I, I I felt that I had seen a a small uh, child's bag, overnight bag, and felt like uh, I needed to see what we could do to make sure that we tried to get that child out. Uh, things got crazy. I was unable to see anybody before I brought that last victim out, but I do remember that and, f- and feeling that I had left somebody behind. 
when we came out from the bus, we went up the second time and we handed the last of the victims off to the Eckerd College kids. Again, they were uh, having a little bit difficult time getting them in the boat, but they uh, eventually got them all in except one, which was the bus driver, which they appeared to lash to the back of the boat. Uh, while we were down on that second dive, apparently the uh, Coast Guard was notified and they had uh, come out, uh, I think it was in a white sumac, uh, to that scene. Also on that uh, Coast Guard cutter, I understand, and I only understood this recently, was the governor. Uh, the governor was in town that day. and Really? He, yes. On the Coast Guard boat? That's correct. He was in Tampa at that time, and uh, he was notified over at Tampa at a meeting, and he jumped on, I think it was the white sumac, and went down there. That was Graham, right? Yes, Bob Governor Graham. Graham, yes. And uh, so he was on that site with the Coast Guardsmen. Huh. So he may have heard some of the reports. I understood that uh, w- we were not uh, enthusiastically welcomed out there and that there was a complaint that we were interfering with an operation. So when the Coast Guard arrived on scene with the governor, uh, the Coast Guardsmen uh, notified our supervisor who was in the boat that it was time for us to leave which is what we did well how much how much later did the coast guard arrive uh we had recovered seven victims i'd say in about 20 25 30 minutes mm. yeah, about uh, they were probably in the vicinity already they just yeah they were on the way down from tampa yeah they were on the way down from tampa the first divers according to the times hit the water at 912 and that would have been the Eckerd College divers the f- some of the first victims were re- were reported arriving at the Potter's Pier over at Fort Soto at like 10 o'clock 1004 that's like two or three hours after the boat Correct. hit the bridge yes yeah something like that so you know some of the people had been in you know still there so, yeah so we did what we could uh, they did send somebody over uh, we were asked to leave uh, which we did and the sheriff's boat was out there as well. Sheriff's boat sheriff was out was there. Marine patrol boats were out there. A lot of boats were out there. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we did as much as we could. And there's no doubt in my mind today that had we been left alone, mm-hmm. that we would have either recovered everybody or died trying. Mm. None. No doubt in my mind then, no mo- doubt in my mind today. What do you think? Oh, yeah. We had plenty of air. It was relatively shallow. We could have gotten everyone out. You sure know, we just it. we wish we would have been left alone, but it was such a commotion and stuff. Like I say, everybody did the best they could. The kids were fantastic. And that's just speaking about the bus. You know, there was assorted other private vehicles right. in the water. There was 35 people total that Correct. died absolutely off the, falling off that bridge, right? Absolutely. And how many people of them were in? The, how many of the 35 were in the bus? Um, I'm thinking 20. I want to say yeah, 23. Mm-hmm. I want to say 23 mm. off the top of my head. And were the rest of the bodies recovered from the other individual cars? or Eventually. They yes. Were. The last victim was recovered on May 14th. It uh, was recovered about uh, three miles east of the bridge. That was the last victim three found floating. east. Found floating, yes. Yeah. Several victims had washed up on uh, Egmont Key, uh, Fort Soto Park and stuff. So they had recovered all the bodies uh, mm-hmm. by the 14th of May. Good Lord. 
how do you guys, what do you guys do after that day? Like after that happens, you guys go home and how do you, I mean, it's not just business as usual after that. I don't expect. Go ahead, Mark. I, I, it was business as usual after that. Was it? Yeah. We, we were working the next day back out there the next day at the same, at the Skyway. Oh yeah. And for many days afterwards. For me, it was a little bit different because for me, after we were asked to leave, I kind of needed to plan our next step and find out what was required of us. Like Mm. you say, it was still, as far as I was concerned, an active accident investigation scene. The National Transportation Safety Board was called in from Washington. They needed some information in regards to the location of the debris on the bottom, how it collapsed, uh, you know, what it looked like, et cetera. Mm. When we left that scene that, that, that morning, we went back to the yard. Uh, we brought our dive gear down to the tackle shack, and that's where we rented a camera. Yeah, 16-millimeter movie camera. 16-millimeter movie camera, and we got four 50-foot nope. rolls of film. Yeah, there was no video then. No video back then. Four 50-foot rolls Movies of film. film. <laughs> How much did that cost? We don't know. Actually, I don't think Lou charged us for that I, camera. I don't think I so. Think he had it. You know, it was his camera. He right. just gave it to it us. It was a personal camera, you know, and he understood the gravity of the situation, and he trusted us, trusted Mike. The guy at Tackle Shack? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Was Andy there when you guys went there? No. No. Was before Andy. Andy? This is Lou. This is, okay. This Lou's is uh, Lou Levine. This is uh, okay. Andy's dad. Oh, Andy okay. and Jimmy and Steve's dad. Okay. So they, uh, we, we got our gear uh, there. He had all the gear that we needed. They took care of us. It was difficult because he understood what was going on because four, five, six months before that, a short time before that, the Blackthorn had gone down Mm. in the channel. And that was still partially obstructing the channel during the accident as well. It was still part of it in there, and they had to relocate part of the channel to get around that while they were removing it. We talked about that Blackthorn. We spent some time out there. So he was aware of uh, that type of recovery, that type of emotion and stuff. He understood and called me later on that night and talked to me and asked me if I was all right and if we were going to go back and what we were going to do, which obviously I knew we were going to after we had our equipment. We were in contact with the bosses over at the office, the bridge office in Tampa. They told us what they needed, measurements, for as many photographs as we could get. Uh, We were not... Uh, much to my displeasure, but for whatever reason, we were not invited to provide any information or help or input on the uh, recovery of the remaining victims, but uh, that that's okay. We had a job to do. They, they, yeah, had, pe- like, they had people to do that. I feel like you took sort of like a lot more personal responsibility in this than you were required. Yes and no. If you read, there's a book that was written about the Skyway. And I think the governor, when he was out there, one of his comments, and I only really realized it recently, was that at the time of that accident, I think it was even at the time that he was there on that scene, his number one concern was nothing other than recovering as many victims as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. So for me, yeah, maybe I took it personally and trying to do what I could. Mike's a Navy man. You don't leave anybody in the water. Right. I'm a Marine. Right. You don't leave anybody behind. Yeah. yeah, I feel like that's something that may have been 
the reason that you felt the way they felt that overwhelming sense of responsibility because i think most people just an, an average everyday diver would have maybe not done what you guys did that's that's probably true but you need to understand that's that was our job that bridge fed my family that bridge and all those bridges uh, provided uh, leisure activities as well as work so yeah it was personal i i i feel at times that i need to defend that poor little thing that poor little bridge because it certainly didn't jump out in front of that big boat but it was a nice little bridge and we enjoyed it. So like I say, the, we probably did, but I think people can understand why I take it personally. I was yeah, responsible absolutely. for making sure that when people went across it, it was safe. Right. So yeah, every bridge that people go across, I feel responsible for. So I take some pride in that. I didn't know Mike does. Sure. You sign your name to that saying that it's okay. Now, during that time, after that, right after that happened, a lot of people blamed the ship captain for that. And I understand there, from watching the documentary that there was a an ongoing public court trial going on where the government was trying to prosecute the captain of the ship. They were calling him an alcoholic. They were calling him incompetent. Everything under the, you know, calling him everything. Trying to blame him for this because they were trying to find a quote-unquote scapegoat for this. What was your guys' opinion of the whole situation after following the crash, following the... Uh... I personally didn't know very much about the pilot, uh, Mr. Laro. I, I didn't really know John anything Lair- about Laro? him. John yeah, Laro? Yeah, I, I didn't know anything about him, so I really never dwelled too much on that. He was eventually completely exonerated. Right. So it, it, it wasn't an issue with me. I, did, I didn't pay much attention to it. I, on the other hand... <laughs> Uh, when that occurred, and, and I think that, and I hope that people can understand, my perspective, when people say the Skyway accident, is the accident and the victims and the faces of those victims that I saw on that bus and that I still carry with me. So I see it as personal. I was there right up close and personal. Can't get much more. Some people I, fault him, I think, because he, he did have a rather cavalier attitude prior to the accident. And I think his quote was, we're going to shoot for the hole, meaning he's going to try to go right down the center of that channel between the main piers, and hopefully he wasn't going to run into it. He mm-hmm. wasn't sure, I don't think. In 70-knot winds, in torrential downpouring rain, right? That's right. It, it it's, it's difficult to say... I, I can guarantee everybody that he did not wake up in the morning and say, boy, you know what? I'm going to go out and smash into that bridge and kill some people. Yeah, that's right. So it was was determined to be an act of God. Right. Back when it happened on that day, I probably would have said something or gotten into a confrontation had I ever bumped into him. I felt that way for many, many years. I have been offered numerous opportunities to sit down and talk to John Lero. Mm. Bob Height, a, a local anchor, wanted me to speak really? to him. Really? Asked me to go ahead and talk to him and see if I could and wanted to. For years, I could not. I could not accept the fact that he did what he did. However, I can say that I have evolved. It, it does come with age. I do see things different. 
I know that he was not an alcoholic and he was not drunk when he struck that bridge. I can guarantee everybody, had he been drunk and had alcohol in his system, they would have detected it and oh, he yeah. would have, he right. would have, you know, just been guilty. I've seen a different side since I've been involved with reliving this. He had, there was no way he could have done anything different because he was already on such a trajectory through that channel with the wind and the weather, all the elements that were involved. He couldn't stop the ship because the ship would have just sailed right into another piling. He had no choice but to try his best and thread the needle. Again, there's even today there's so much discussion on what he could have done, what he should have done, what he may have done. Best thing would have been not to even go that morning and leave the the safety of uh, the open water where they had pumped the boat out to make it lighter. However, he did choose to. Had he had a current, updated, accurate weather forecast from Ruskin notifying him that there was a potential weather bomb Mm. headed in his direction with cyclonic winds shortly, I'm pretty sure that he would not have even left to go into the bay. However, he did. That decision was made. He did the best he could. It was considered an act of God. Had he not taken the actions that he did by throwing it into reverse, dropping the anchors, there's no doubt in my mind, had he completely ignored all of that and kept on plowing through, that he would have more than likely taken down the second bridge. Probably. He probably Mm. would have taken down both bridges if he didn't take the actions that he did. You're right. I think he did a fantastic job based on what he had to work with. And isn't it true that the weather report didn't even come in till like an hour after he struck the bridge? Absolutely. Or, or so. Absolutely. That's why I say if he would have had proper communications like they do today, I'm sure it wouldn't have happened. The radar was a complete whiteout mm-hmm. or, or blackout or whiteout. Uh, there, was, there was no other vessels that could give him any advice on the conditions ahead. The other vessel that was headed out that had a full load of oil was called the pure oil was headed out at the same time at about 7:30 in the morning he saw the weather he didn't get a forecast he diverted his ship out of the shipping channel and actually anchored up and waited for the storm to pass really yes it was called the pure oil it's it's uh, pretty well documented in the newspaper and stuff. And they were leaving the docks going out to sea he was headed out with a full load of oil i shudder to think what would have happened had he Jesus. not pulled out and anchored up? I think he stopped, I want to say, less than a half a mile or a mile from the bridge on the east side, on the inside. Had he not stopped and done what he did, he either would have been under it, in it, on top of it, or whatever, with a load of oil. And I can only imagine the potential impact, environmental impact damage from that. So, like I say, there, there were plenty of stories out there and plenty of, uh, conditions that uh, you know, people make choices. Uh, everybody made a choice on that day, and that was the choice, and that was the results. I guarantee you that you know, there's no way he intentionally did that, or or that he was drunk. That's that's still disgusting to this day to hear that. Yeah, you're. 
That's a good point you made. It could have been way worse if he would have done something different, not put it in reverse, Absolutely. not through the anchors down. He could have definitely hit that second span Absolutely. and killed way more people. And taken both bridges out and completely shut down the economy and, and everything for South. Absolutely. So how long, how many times after that day did you guys go out consecutively? To I'm going to guess the, we were out there for about two weeks. I know we were out least. there... The next day on the 10th, we started measurements. We started f- uh, photography. Uh, we swam every inch of that thing as it was down. Uh, on May 11th, which was Mother's Day, is when they brought that bus up finally. We mm. were out there on Mother's Day. We were within a couple of hundred yards of that location. It was very difficult. There was a lot of, for whatever reason, boat traffic. and you got to call them what it is, gawkers. Yeah, that just be. wouldn't stay away. The Coast Guard and the Marine Patrol had a very difficult time people keeping people away from that location as they mm. were trying to raise the bus. Right. They had brought in a derrick and a floating barge, and they lifted eventually that bus up onto that uh, location on Mother's Day. Mother's Day on that evening, at that time I was married and I had two children. And I can guarantee you that when I went home on Mother's Day, my wife got an extra big hug and a kiss. Not only that day, but the, every day for about two weeks afterwards when I went out there. I know that Mike's fiance At the time. Mike's fiance at the time probably would have skinned me alive if she could have <laughs> caught me, realizing what I had put Mike through and what I had put Mike done right. on that day and the following day and the next day. I know it was difficult for Mike, and I know it still is for both of us. We were out there a good two weeks gathering information not only for the DOT, but also for, like I said earlier, the National Transportation Safety Board. Mm. Uh, we had completed a report and put it together. It was uh, published, I think, June of 1980. When did you guys get this thing? Oh. And how much does this weigh? I'm guessing it's, I, I weighed it. I'm guessing it's 38 pounds. Oh. I think that, it's more than that, Bob. This thing is like... Could be. That is one of four large anchor bolts that anchored the bearing pad table. to the top of Pier 1 South. Mm-hmm. There were four of those that were holding a pad probably about the size of this table. A There's, concrete pad? On top of the concrete... This is one I'm going to give you a picture of. Yeah, that essentially is the means of securing the truss to the concrete piers. That's a big ass nut. Here it is. <laughs> this is. Yeah, I'm going to show you this, but I've got a better picture. This is the pier. Pier one north. There's a small speck on top of that. You may not be able to see it, but that's the remaining bearing pad. The other bearing pad was on this side. When the bridge was pulled off in this direction. It pulled itself completely free of the bearing pad by snapping four of these large bolts in a nanosecond. It sheared. It's just like a Superman ripped that. Four of those. And this is what... That was one. That's the... That's the remaining bolt was four feet into the... Embedded four feet into the concrete. Jesus Christ. The noise that that bridge would have made... When that thing went down, because all of that metal snapped and buckled and rivets were flying hundreds of yards away and steel was flying and that thing squealed and cried the whole way down. 
So that was one of four that was completely sheared. We recovered all four of those. On that particular day, I think we swam up. Of course, we were both younger then. But How could you swim up 50 feet with one of these in your hand? Bob could. I had to tie... The one I, I, I have to I an anchor walk. line and pull it up with a rope. That's what we did for we were a commercial diver. That's what we did. I was a good swimmer. So you must have been jacked. We uh, we were able to recover four of those, and this is one. Eventually, I'm thinking about donating it maybe to the museum over in Tampa. There's a Skyway Museum. Well, we'll oh, have really? to think about that. My kids, our grandkids, may want that. But this is one of four that was snapped. That's unbelievable. Instantly. That's why I say the, the, the tremendous energy that it must have taken and the noise that it made when that thing popped and went and let go must have been tremendous. Tremendous. Oh, yeah. Not to mention all the small rivets. Pop, 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 yep, pop. Yep, absolutely. How long did it take for them to start rebuilding the new bridge? Well, you're... That's... How long did it take them to start rebuilding the new bridge? They didn't rebuild the new bridge. They, they, they built a new structure that was opened in 87. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, after, so it took after, seven years? Yeah, it took seven years for the construction, and that was after the completion of what type of design and who was going to build it and uh, what type, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Uh, they were able to use the northbound bridge to... Oh, yeah, there was still half of the bridge. Okay. Correct. So they just split it up. They uh, barricaded it off and, and signed it up and stuff, and they carried traffic for until 1987 when yeah. it was finally uh, uh, blown up and destroyed. Wow. And, of course, the fishing piers are still there, the, the remains of the original bridges. Now, the seven years, seven years later when they started to construct the new bridge, were you guys involved in any of the inspections of that? Bob, weren't you telling me, you were showing me a photo, you were telling me they wanted you to dive down inside of like a tube where they were pouring concrete underwater? Yes. You mean the coffer dam? Yes. Yeah. Let me, uh, what's it called? Coffer dam. Coffer dam. A coffer dam. Yeah, essentially they take steel sheet piling that are in- interlockable and they pound them into the ground, form a complete circle, and they can pump that out. And it have a, have a dry area okay. right in the middle of the bay, so they can start drilling their uh, foundation supports. Oh wow! Yeah. How do you want to do this? Just hold it up, Mike. I'm gonna. You can hold it on the chair if you want. All right. Well, there's the coffer dam. Okay. This is one of the bearing piling that they used caisson that they drilled into the ground anywhere from eighty to hundred feet. Uh, it's about eight feet in diameter because there's a human being right there about eight feet in diameter i think there was about 44 of those scattered around the, the perimeter that's nuts of the main piers of the two main piers that that's the one that they wanted us to go inside and check to see if it was okay and didn't collapse <laughs> that's insane man that's wild well what made this even more challenging is that these are just uh unprotected steel okay and so they they get rust oxidation on them even below the water and so if you go into one of these and create any turbulence at all that oxidation on the sides comes off the sides and immediately clouds the water so you have zero visibility can't see a thing can't see your hand this far from your face right how deep do those things go i'm they what they did was they had determined how deep they needed to go. Each one may have varied 
But you can Here, let's just wait till you get back to the microphone so we can hear you. Just they were used as bearing pile to support that tremendous weight, so they had determined uh, a predetermined elevation. They were averaging uh, usually 80 to 100 and some feet uh, before they uh, were satisfied that they would uh, hold the bearing. I'm not sure because there were 44 of them, and there were mm-hmm. a neat pier or something. There was a bunch, so they had varying elevations. Yeah, man, it's amazing to me that <laughs> there was a time when they wouldn't, think of having something to protect bridges from these massive tanker or these massive cargo ships that were going through just like these giant objects that could easily destroy this bridge that people drive over every day like like you see now obviously those big round whatever they are this big round concrete bumpers they have they call them dolphins that's correct they're called dolphins dolphins correct correct it's amazing to me that they weren't they no one could think of that before this had to happen. Unfortunately, that's part of the the history of the inspection program. Uh, like I say, it started with a tragedy in the Anclote River, and they developed a program. This tragedy changed the way they looked at building and protecting bridges, just like you said. After this occurred, uh, they had determined that, that it was inadequately protected. So they made special efforts to put in those large dolphins, which, you know, will sustain most any impact. That's what they were designed for. It affected bridges being built everywhere, not just in the United States, but all, all across the country. They used that uh, as an example for protection and stuff. So it did cause, tragedy did cause a lot of advances in bridge inspections, bridge building, and bridge construction materials. Now, this was also the biggest bridge disaster or a bridge accident in history. In this the history was the, the largest bridge ship collision, uh, accident in history, in U.S. history, that's correct. And this, I mean, the bridge, the Skyway Bridge, is like a monument and an icon to Florida. Like, even you'll see on, you go to any gas station, and any Florida postcard has a big picture of the sun and then a big outline of the Skyway Bridge. I mean, it's like a monument for Florida. Yep, yep. It's considered an icon. I think it's considered one of the top ten bridges in the United States for aesthetics and stuff. It's very nice. They just put... Uh, Million, oh, yeah, it's pretty, 10, have you 15? seen it at night when it's all lit up? It's all lit up now. I've never been, I mean, I've driven over it, but I've never, like, been in a boat under it when oh, it's, it's at night. Yeah, they spent uh, millions of dollars on uh, LED lighting uh, that uh, uh, shifts, uh, make different colors, mm-hmm. patterns, American flag. Uh, it's, it's very beautiful. They've done that to many of the bridges, many of the bridges. That bridge accident also caused, like I say, it's, uh, special uh, safety features now in all of the larger bridges, electronic monitoring, sensors mm-hmm. to tell if there's any vibrations or uh, uh, separations in the spans uh, to prevent that kind of stuff. They've done tremendous amount of improvements in regards to safety on large structures like that to you know, prevent something like that from happening. That's incredible. And what was so explain to me what the process was when these people for this documentary, the Skyway Bridge disaster, when they came to you, were you surprised or shocked at all with any any of the information that they were able to uncover? Uh, I'm going to say that we came to them. My daughter had. Oh, no one knew about you guys. Nobody had ever heard about the DOT divers Mm -hmm. except our bridge inspection community, our family. Skyway documentary did not, no, no disrespect, Frankie, hear about us before that. 
I contact, contacted them, and we had our first meeting on June 26th of 2019. The documentary came out in September of 2019. So I had just bumped into him. They had put a Facebook site up, and they were asking for true stories. I knew we had a true story, and I knew that it was a story that uh, had never been told because we didn't tell it. Nobody asked. Nobody asked. Nobody asked. So we uh, pestered them. I pestered them and pestered them, and they finally said, if these guys are for real, I imagine we probably ought to interview them. So they uh, contacted us. We had a meeting uh, over at Derby Lane. Uh, we met with Frankie Vanderbilt and uh, introduced ourselves. And I, and I think it was pretty, pretty plain from Frankie that I – provided the documentation that I have and our expertise and experience in bridge inspection and our story. But I think pretty much when I put this picture down and laid it in front of him, I think he understood that we were actually out there. Mm-hmm. All of the, most of the people in the documentary and stuff, uh, there's not too many of them that were actually there. There are a few. There's a couple of Coast Guardsmen mm-hmm. and some of the other people. But most of the story, I think we were some of the few people that were really there mm. we hadn't had a chance to tell our story and once frankie heard it he made sure that we were there i have a special announcement if you'll allow me yes please i am proud to announce that the documentary film crew has considered and are putting together a part two of the skyway documentary oh cool they have uh, received reviews on the uh, Amazon uh, site. They asked for reviews, and they are listening to the people that reviewed the documentary. Uh, they have taken the people's uh, questions and are, are looking to tell more stories and are actually uh, putting together a part two uh, to be out soon uh, if they can complica- uh, complete the, the issue. But they are going to go ahead and do a part two on that, include more stories such as ours. So uh, hopefully it'll be out here shortly. But, I, you know, that's a, that's an exclusive for you. Interesting, man. Well, what, what else would it cover besides, I mean, obviously uh, this documentary, I feel like it covered a lot of the story of um, Lero, the captain, and his attorney and their friendship and kind of like the misconceptions of him. So the second part, you think, will dive more into the stories the, that you guys The personal told? stories. Okay. Uh, what they've done is they've taken a review uh, based on the, the reviews that they've got, and they're going ahead and trying to answer some of those questions of who the people want to see mm. that have seen the, 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 the documentary, what they want to hear. So they're asking more people, probably somebody like uh, uh, the Coast Guard people and, and us maybe uh, would be included in telling further stories. They're looking for stories rather than uh, you know, just the, 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 the accident itself. That's incredible. Well, I'll look forward to it. Is there anything else that you guys would like to share before we wrap it up? Yeah, I, I'd like to say thanks uh, to a lot of people. There, there are so many people that were out there that day that we worked with in, in, in past uh, that while we were still out there. We worked with the Pinellas County Sheriff's Department, their bomb squad, when we were doing bomb inspections out there also. We worked with the Manatee County Sheriff's Bomb Squad, Hillsborough County Sheriff's Bomb Squad. We worked with the dive teams. We would like to say thank you to all of those guys that we didn't have a chance to out there that day or the following months and years. That thing had uh, received several bomb calls and bomb threats that we were involved in 
another one of those things that, uh, you know, wasn't our job description, but we did it. Uh, it was necessary to open it up for traffic. We haven't had a chance to say thank you. Uh, I, I have a, a poster similar to the one over there that was signed by as many people that we could muster that were there that day from Pinellas Maintenance that we'd like to go ahead and, and give to the DOT yard and say thank you to all of those guys who also haven't had a chance to tell their story and, and, and give them that opportunity to at least be acknowledged and recognized. So we, we do have some uh, further plans to give some uh, posters out and, and say thanks. Uh, we, there are so many people that were involved. Without my faith, my family, my friends, and the truth, there's no doubt in my mind that it would have been so much more difficult to accomplish what we did. Prior to us being exposed or coming out in the documentary, nobody had heard our story. We're not looking for a parade, money, or badge, or anything like that. We're just trying to set history straight, tell the truth. If it's going to be about the Skyway and we were involved, I'd like the truth to be told. And so far, I think the documentary has done a very good job. Definitely have to give a shout-out to Gabrielle Calise and the, and the Times for allowing her the opportunity to spend some time doing an investigative report that further solidified and documented our credibility in regards to this issue. Gabrielle did a great job, great job, and she, and, and she really uh, kept us all out of trouble and kept it as neutral as she could. She did a fantastic job, and thanks to the Times, even though it took 38, 40 years, Hmm. to get to us we appreciate the time that we've had well thank you guys for sharing your story i'm sure it it takes a lot to be able to talk about everything in detail and you know i appreciate you guys for all the hard work and sacrifice that you guys have made as well and uh thanks again for coming on and telling your story danny i appreciate it thank you very much yes sir pleasure to be here